I welcome you to our eighth study, founded upon the 14th Pilgrim Psalm, Psalm 133, and the topic that we've very sensibly chosen to speak on from this psalm is captured by the title of these teachings, which is Looking for Unity. And I bring you this afternoon to a new subtitle, which will be something we're working with for a few studies, and it is, How Does It Flow? How does it flow? How does unity flow? How does the blessing that this psalm speaks of flow? In verse 1 of Psalm 133, we are told with an exclamation point that brethren dwelling together in unity is both good and it's beautiful, it's pleasant. And there's a phrase that is commonly employed in human communication when we're seeking to explain things to one another. We say, what would that look like? We use this in all aspects of human interaction, picking something at random for the moment. Say, for example, in the secular sphere, Having recently gone through a new election season, there will be among the citizens of the United States some who have been elected to office, some of whom will have a moral conscience, and they will be taking an oath to the Constitution. And they may be asking themselves, and this is the idea that I'm referring to with that phrase, what would that look like? They may be asking themselves, what would the living out of having taken an oath to uphold the Constitution look like in our present political climate. With respect to this topic of unity, we've seen together that the psalmist provides for us an answer to that very relevant question as to what would unity look like? How would it operate? How would we work our way toward it? And so in the second verse, we're told that it would look like ointment flowing down from the head of Aaron upon his beard, even to the very skirts of his garments. In the third verse, we're told by simile that this is the way it would look. It would look like the dew of Hermon that descended and even the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, we've sought in previous studies to enlarge upon the spiritual teaching of those two verses. Indeed, in these studies that are continuing now under the subtitle of How Does It Flow? If you're still wondering, what would that look like in our own day? It is my hope that Clarity will be granted more and more to your minds and consciences as far as how to answer that. But look with me at the very last two statements separated by a comma that end this psalm. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. What I am relaying to you is that here a blessing is promised Here it is acknowledged by God himself that when we pay attention to the direction that is given to us in the second and third verses, that as we've seen together, 
enlarge upon or support the general idea that is spoken of in the first verse, that whenever this direction is followed, then there will be an experience of the flowing of the blessing that is brotherly unity and is this idea of life forevermore. You'll remember that Paul quoted from one of the Athenian poets, and he referred to one of the Cretan prophets when writing to Titus about the Cretans. I want to begin in that tradition to bring some familiar words to you from a poet of our own, one might say. A familiar line from the poet Robert Frost, who passed away at the age of 88 in 1963. He spent most of his life, indeed, in these New England states. Though born in San Francisco, he died in Massachusetts, but throughout his life he lived in other locations within New England, including within New Hampshire and within Vermont. The line that I'm going to be quoting is from a poem that he wrote while living in Derry, New Hampshire. And one of our members presently lives in Derry, New Hampshire. As a matter of fact, he penned these lines while seeking to make a go at being a farmer, which he eventually gave up and went back to teaching. And in this case, he taught English in Pinkerton Academy. The poem is named Mending Wall, and it was written some time in about the year 1914. And the line from that poem that I want to direct your thoughts toward is the well-known line that includes the statement, good fences make good neighbors. Indeed, that statement is made by a hypothetical New England neighbor with whom the poet is conversing. And the line says in its entirety, he only says, good fences make good neighbors. Well, the idea of fences, stone walls, and the like, the idea of separation and having our own spaces, is not just a New England thing, nor is it simply an American thing. It is a human concept, and it's the idea with which I want to begin our thoughts and reflections this afternoon. In fact, I think it's purposeful to look into the context within which Frost placed those lines to see more of the ideas that are associated with that statement, good fences make good neighbors, lest one conclude that that is a remark that is simply to be taken at face value as if it's obvious that fences are necessary in the modern human experience. No, the lines within which that remark is made include the following statements. And of course, this is in the form of poetry. There, where it is, we do not need the wall. His is all pine, and I am an apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. In this little stanza of poetic lines, 
I trust you get the idea behind them. Perhaps Frost himself, speaking through the voice of a New England farmer, is relaying to his neighbor, I have apple trees on my land, you have pine trees on your land, there is no threat between the two of us, given what is presently what we're all about, therefore why do we need to mend this wall? Why don't we just allow this wall to gradually deteriorate and allow us to come back together in some form of neighborly unity? But his New England neighbor knows only one form of living, evidently. He has only one type of reflection about human relations. He has a default attitude that he immediately brings forth and says, well, good fences make good neighbors. If you know this particular poem, you know that that line is repeated. Indeed, it is the last line of the poem. But I want to read you some lines that precede the very last line that make the same point that I just made. And here the poet asks some questions that I think will help us to focus our own thoughts. The poet asks, if I could put a notion in his head, why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Well, I bring this poem before you, number one, because it makes reference to a very common line that we can use as our launching point of reflection. Good fences make good neighbors, but if, like perhaps with Paul's Athenian hearers or the Cretans themselves, if you weren't aware of the fact that there are some thoughts out there beyond, for example, maybe your own or the ideas that are operating within the Christian community that raise some very sensible questions and it behooves us to examine our own hearts and to see who we are as believers in the midst of this world. You can think with me, of the question that Frost is effectively raising here, think just, as it were, generically what this poem is getting at. He is stating that, I understand if there are cows on my property, or if there are tree or growth that would perhaps threaten your property, then maybe we need a fence. But if those things don't exist... In other words, if there is not some sort of palpable, tangible, demonstrable, important reason as to why there should be divisions among us, then why do we continue to mend the walls that divide the churches of Jesus Christ or one another within the churches or within our own families? And that is the reflection with which we will bring. And in a sort of Pauline form 
of exhortation, I hope it'll strike your hearts that if in the trajectory of human thought and reflection, that kind of moral question can be raised by a poet, then should we not be raising that same question among ourselves? I bring you from Frost's poem to the statement of a biblical commentator that makes some remarks that are similar. His reflections flow from his own thoughts about Psalm 133, and he writes the following. The world is broken. Fences and walls are the symbols of our age. And you'll allow me, I suppose, to make my own remarks as I read his statements. When I read those lines, I think, and yes, they're not just the symbols of our age, but barriers and Forms of protection and division have been the story of the human experience ever since the fall. You remember with me that there's a fence, as it were, that is instituted by God himself protecting the tree of life. There were cherubims with flaming swords that were separating Adam from the sacred space of the Garden of Eden. But the question, of course, before us, I trust you're starting to see, is where is there a justification for the fences and the separations that are among us? And where should these walls be allowed to be taken down in the interest of a better and biblical unity? Our biblical commentator goes on to say, all of this is a consequence of the fall. We now live separated from God and separated from each other. We not only have to think of the continuing conflict of the superpowers, the nations that is, but of a thousand smaller conflicts as well. Since the end of World War II, there have been more than 150 wars on the planet, hardly a witness to the United Nations or to a united earth. The real scandal, however, is not the brokenness of the world, but the brokenness of the church. The truth of this is not merely seen in the expanding number of denominations and independent congregations. The real truth of this is in the brokenness of relationships within those congregations. In other words, dear brethren, within the very church that you are a part of. And that's where I want to focus our thoughts, not to the exclusion of what our relationship might be to other churches and to what extent we have long-standing, as it were, New England walls put there for whatever reasons at some time in the past and I do not exclude the question of asking ourselves, do we need to continue to mend these walls and pick up the stones and put them back in place in some act of a sense of security over against asking ourselves and speaking across the, set, the fence, as it were, to our neighbor and asking, do you feel any particular threat from my doctrinal stance or my Christian testimony or my love for Jesus or my interest in God's kingdom? And may I hear from you 
what your relationship with God is and what your doctrinal distinctives are, and may I reflect on those and ascertain whether or not there is such a need of concern that I need to build up a wall here and separate ourselves anew and mend these fences as opposed to thinking about how good and how beautiful it might be to be the living stones of the Lord Jesus Christ and to allow God to speak to our hearts about how we can find unity in Christ and build something to His glory. I would say that while we are not excluding that reflection and nor are we excluding even in a larger context the interest in unity within the human race, I am not certainly here embracing the social gospel or some sort of utopian argumentation that everything is going to work out perfectly if we just implement the right politics or the right method. But I nonetheless bring those thought patterns to your mind because certainly it is the case that the divisions that are among us that began as a result of the fall that as we referenced before was manifest even between husband and wife, Adam and Eve, and then between God and his creature, and then between the creature and sacred space being separated by a fence of flaming fire from a closer relationship with God, all of these things are not in keeping with the ideals and the purposes of our Heavenly Father. And so when we read Psalm 133 and when we talk on the topic of looking for unity, it is not inappropriate even to search our New England hearts on the question of why do we have such divisions? Why are there so many fences and so many walls that separate us in so many different ways? And if I bring you into an aspect of our lives even within the Christian churches. So now we are narrowing our investigation out of the world at large, narrowing it down even beyond the cohesion within a particular nation, zooming in even past the divisions that exist within the confess confessing Christian world, Entering into a local church like this particular church, the Upper Room Christian Assembly. And for starters, we will zoom right into our human relationships within the family. And I thank God that this assembly does not reflect the percentages that are true of this nation with respect to divorce. But it is the case that more broadly speaking, and I do grant and admit that now I am sort of zooming back out for a moment to make a point, and I am stating to you that whether we're considering the population at large or we're considering how that population is also comprised of confessing Christian people, the percentages of divorces remain effectively the same. First, marriages will end in divorce between 42 to 45% of the time. Second marriages will end in divorce 60% of the time. Third marriages will end in divorce 73% of the time. 
Now, for my heart, that strengthens my commitment to think about what the Word of God has to say about how unity works, what the Word of God has to say when we ask the question, now, what would that look like in our time? How would we arrive at a better unity in our culture, in our churches, in this particular family? What would that look like? Because evidently, we still have the phenomenon of human beings here now represented in the common experience of marriage. People still do marry. And I'm using this as a way of manifesting the point. We will enlarge from the marriage institution and focus mostly upon the church and indeed the local church to make the same point. And the point is this, that humans are still seeking to unite. Marriage is a manifestation of that. They are trying to unify and find blessedness and happiness and joy in unity. And 40% of the time they're failing. But then they get up and they try, try again. But we're seeing that even when they do so, they are failing at higher rates, even when, if at first you don't succeed, then give it another shot. Marry again and see if you can get it right. And you would think that perhaps they would have learned from some of their mistakes, but you already heard from me that there is a much higher rate of divorce that occurs at second and third attempts to find blissful, beautiful unity and to find human hearts that can get along and and uh, keep together and build a family and experience community and strength and happiness and productivity and all the things that Psalm 133 speaks of. But I think it is obvious that the reason why the first attempt doesn't work and there is a failure and why when they nonetheless try, try again, it continues to fail at an even higher rate is because, dear brothers and sisters, we are not paying attention to the instruction of God's Word as to how to reach beautiful, biblical, brotherly unity. And that indeed is what I'm leading you toward, reflecting on. We want to see how does this flow? How does the blessing come to our churches? I think it appropriate to just remind you for a moment that not just within marriages, but also again within Christendom. You know, when we think about the idea of fences and walls, it does seem like the average Christian neighbor has a default disposition to his neighbor, whether or not that neighbor is a, is a Christian him or herself, and that default disposition is good fences make good neighbors. I say that because according to the latest statistics regarding how many denominations there are in the world, if we can follow the estimates of a certain missionary statistician by the name of David B. Barrett, who is somewhat of an authority or was somewhat of an authority on these matters. He passed away in 2011. He estimated in the 1990 Dictionary of Christianity and in America that there were nearly 21,000 Christian denominations worldwide. And then in the 
2001 edition of the Oxford World Christian Encyclopedia, this number increased to nearly 34,000 Christian denominations worldwide. Now that's staggering. Perhaps at some level we take this for granted, but so does the New England farmer. That's the point of the poem. He has one response to all these walls that mark off all this property and territory. When asked, why do we need this wall? All he knows to say is, well, good fences make good neighbors. Somehow there must be some sort of protection. There must be some sort of need. This is, is it not an ancient landmark that the fathers have established? And doesn't the Bible say, remove not the ancient landmark? Can you imagine looking down from heaven and seeing nearly 34,000 denominations? What would that look like if it was a geographic image that was constituted of fences and walls? I mean, you would just have properties everywhere that were segregated from one another. And within those various properties, there'd be a number of men and women who confess to be Christians and take out their Bibles and read their Bibles and pray to one heavenly father and confess to be saved by one Lord Jesus and embrace one God and father of all. And yet they keep mending their fences and building back their walls. Is there something about this that Psalm 133 is challenging when it says it is good and pleasant for there to be unity among brethren? Is there a goodness and a pleasantness that we aren't perceiving because we have a New England attitude about us that just shrugs its shoulder, has a little humph in its reflex and says, well, good fences make good neighbors. All of this division within Christendom exists in spite of the fact that both the way toward unity is revealed and a special blessing is promised upon all who reach the place of unity. In our previous studies, we have begun in looking into the similes to describe the way toward biblical unity. And now as we think about the last statement in verse 3, and we read the words, for there the Lord commands the blessing. We realize and we will be making the case that whether you think of the there as referring to Zion or you think of the there as referring to the achievement that allows the oil to flow down from the high priest our Lord Jesus Christ, through the appointed ministry, down to all the members of the body, that allows the refreshing dew to come down from the heights of heaven and reach the dry places of our daily existence. Whether you think in terms of the there as referring specifically again to Zion or this place of unity, certainly we have an, a remarkable statement that God not only makes possible a blessing when this configuration is reached, and may I say that the application in my view 
of the there speaks to both Zion and the unity that the psalm is advocating. The there meaning there. When you arrive at the proper arrangement that enhances and encourages unity and it begins to flow, then there the Lord commands the blessing. And the Jews would have had a typical experience of that during their pilgrim celebrations. So it would be Zion, but more importantly, not just Zion as a location anymore, then it's just applicable to a church just because we go to church. But certainly church, uh, the churches of Jesus Christ are a location where we should be anticipating and expecting that this blessing would begin to flow. But we certainly do need to take heed to obeying the principles that allow it to occur. But what I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is not only are we told that the possibility of a blessing known as unity among the brethren is available to us by Almighty God, Don't get ahead of me, dear brothers and sisters, and think that I'm saying everything by these remarks. That ought to be obvious to you. But nonetheless, I want to challenge not only our possible still old man remnants of New England dispositions, I want to challenge my brothers and sisters in Christ everywhere because I know it's not simply unique to New England that there are walls that are old and they are separating us for reasons that we cannot reasonably validate or continue to uphold. So I challenge your hearts and mine by saying to all of us that not only is the possibility of a blessing that is biblical unity available to you 34,000 separated denominations, not just churches, but denominations, according to the statistics. Are you aware of that? My 34,000 separate entities confessing the name of Jesus, that the possibility of biblical unity is stated within Psalm 133. But more than that, it is commanded, which is to say that God is saying, I will command the blessing where I find an interest in beautiful, biblical, brotherly unity. And this is not an idea that we should pass by quickly. If I may stick with my New England metaphor, and I am from New England, hearers of these messages may not be, and again, I don't think the human disposition is that different the world around, but there is a stereotypical kind of coldness and aloneness and stick to yourselfness about the old New England farmer, Yankee. I'm not trying to paint everybody with a negative brush, but it's true. And that's from whence Frost gets his ideas in writing the poem that we're referencing. And I'm saying New England heart. I'm saying Christian heart anywhere. Maybe you need to pause a little longer at the fence before you just shrug your shoulder and say, oh, God commands a blessing. Oh, did he? That's interesting. Oh, you got apple trees on your side that aren't threatening me. Your particular view on this issue isn't threatening me. We could, we could understand one another and we could have unity between ourselves without being threatened. 
In fact, maybe I could use some of your pine cones and you could use some of my apple trees. Do you ever think about that? How about just a little passage maybe, just a few rocks removed so that I can share my apples and you can share your pine cones. I'm saying that maybe we should pause at the fence a little longer and think about what we are reading here. We're reading the Word of God. And our Father is saying that there, where biblical unity is occurring, that's where God commands the blessing. And I think it wise, and it is my intention, to focus directly upon the local assembly. So that, for us, is all of us. So we can be asking among ourselves, where are the fences between one another? To what degree do we, in our attitudes, in our reflexes, do we put back the stones that maybe in God's providence he's knocking down in one way or another through this act or other. You know what I'm saying? Even in Frost's poem, he references various actions that move the stones. Maybe a thief or an animal or somebody knocks the stone down for some reason or another, and yet the New England farmer feels compelled to put it back up again. I mean, sometimes things happen that maybe wouldn't be your preferred method as to how the fences get broken down, but in God's providence, He's trying to break these fences down. But we only feel secure and comfortable when we go back and find that stone and put it back in its place, and we say to ourselves, well, good fences make good neighbors. I need to protect my reputation. I need to protect my family. I need to protect my position. I need to protect my thoughts. I just need to protect my peace whatever it might be. At some point, dear brothers and sisters, when there are so many divisions within confessing Christendom, when there are so many divorces within the human race, this statistic is harder to capture on a graph, but I would also argue when there are so many divisions even within the local assembly, within our attitudes, within our thoughts, within our patterns of behavior, or one could state it differently when there's a lack of a unity and a building together for a single purpose directed by the Spirit, and we are more like separate families and separate lives that come from our farms every Sunday to gather to hear God's Word, then we go back to our farms again and we live on the other side of our fences. These sorts of um, mental ideas is what I'm challenging our hearts with because the Bible says there is a situation, there is a place, there is a lived experience within which God commands the blessing for His people where something from Almighty God begins to really flow when an anointing and a dew begins to really be manifest among God's people, which is not just a temporary fragrance or just a temporary wetness. It is an anointing that is similar to the anointing that Jesus had that met the needs of those that were around Him. It is a dew that brings fruit in times of dryness. And if we lack those experiences, starting with our local churches, then maybe... It is because there are fences and walls that we continue to mend. And we need to be asking ourselves why we do this. And thinking about what we can do toward opening up our hearts and lives in churches for the blessing of God to not just be possible, but to be commanded.
And so when we think about that language there, the Lord, Yahweh, Almighty God commands the what? Just another Sunday. No, he commands a blessing. We're reminded of other passages that make similar remarks. For example, in Genesis 6, in verse 22, just in terms of reflecting the authority of Almighty God, that the Hebrew word sabah points to. The same word is used in this statement, thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. And if he did not, he would not have made it. This is before the flood actually takes place and Noah was given commandments from God as to how to build a vessel of rescue that would have God's blessing upon him and bring him through hard times. And Noah did everything that God commanded. And when the rains descended in a destructive force, Noah and his family were safe inside because they paid attention to the power of God's commands. The same Hebrew term is used in Isaiah 45 and verse 12. Here God speaks of His power. He says, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. When you hear the language of Almighty God giving us instruction as to how to reach biblical unity that He states in the first verse is good and pleasant, and then He explains or He enlarges upon, He brings us to these two simile gates and shows us, if you will understand what these similes refer to, that show you what this would look like in human behavior, when we understand what these things mean by the Spirit of God, we can open these gates and walk down the path to unity. And the psalm ends with saying, there the Lord commands the blessing. We're talking about the same God who commanded and created the earth. It's saying to us, church, God will command the blessing where he sees brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. What a powerful motivation that should be to our spirits to take these admonitions seriously. And if in a sense the Holy Spirit is saying to us, while we're building a wall, perhaps between ourselves and our spouse, or ourselves and our parents, or ourselves and our children, or one family in the church with another, or this church with some other church group somewhere, and we just instinctively continue to build these fences and repair these walls, and we're not listening to the Holy Spirit perhaps asking us, what is it that's threatening you? What is on my property that is so dangerous to your property that we need all these divisions, which obviously means there is less unity than would otherwise be the case. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and the 8th verse, we have the use of the Hebrew word sabah that is used in Psalm 133 in a very similar type of promise. We read, the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thy hand onto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 
Of course, it's remarkable when you consider the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy that the Lord clearly sets before his people the blessing and the curses, and he plainly spells out to them what sort of behavior would bring upon him the Lord's disfavor and the breakdown of their lives and the curse of their experience. And he also sets before them what kind of behavior, what value system, what objectives should they set their hearts upon so that they would find themselves in a place spiritually within which God would command the blessing. In spite of that opportunity, we see in the history of Israel that all too often they evidently shrug their shoulder, stuck to their old stodgy ways and kept themselves, limited themselves, constricted themselves from the changes that they would need to pay attention to in order to place themselves within the flow of God's blessing. What a remarkable reflection that should be to our spirits. There is a place where God commands the blessing. I tell you, that looks like a flow I'm not here telling you just so you know, because we, you know, we have to really battle this New England spirit. Because this New England spirit, as I'm preaching, is saying, well, there's trials and there's temptations and there needs to be divisions, etc. We're going to get to some of those things. But that New England spirit just reacts instinctively through ages and ages and ages of a certain negative disposition. And you can't really justify beyond just, well, he just says... Good fences make good neighbors. I'm trying to probe our spirits and challenge them because evidently Israel gave little attention to the prospect that they could enter into an absolute flow of God's blessing. And sometimes they did taste of it here and there when they reformed their lives, when they put forth more diligence to live in accordance with God's value system and to order their lives in obedience to God's word. And you can see it for yourself in their own history. They would begin to experience God's blessing. And I'm saying to all of us, brothers and sisters, God will command his blessing where there is an interest in unity in your marriage, in your family, in your churches, or in Christendom. He will command the blessing. And if your family or your church lacks that experience, You need to examine your heart about whether or not you believe in that promise and whether or not in hungering and thirsting and desiring for it, you are paying heed to what would that look like. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, if you're having a struggle in your marriage, you know what you need to be asking yourself? What would that look like? What would unity look like in this marriage? What would unity look like in this family relationship? What would unity look like in this church? And I hope you're already able to answer that question to some extent, having already had seven teachings on looking for unity. I'll remind you of one principle right now that is preserved in the last statement of this psalm. The principle, as we've stated to you over and over again, is you have to value the moral. You have to value the divine order 
that God has instituted. You have to value getting things right at the top and recognizing wherever your relative position is within the arrangement of God. You have to accept that, appreciate that, honor it, live within it, and don't fight against it. Because unity is not a matter of you demanding your equality and you feel as though that is the path toward unity. No, that is putting the cart before the horse. That is a jumbled, modern, unsophisticated, deceptive instinct, dear brothers and sisters. The reason why I say that that principle of getting things right at the top is preserved in the very last thought of this psalm is for the obvious, for the obvious point that it takes the Lord to command the blessing. Biblical unity, hear me brothers and sisters, don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Biblical unity is dependent upon the high authority of Almighty God being understood and respected such that we are rightly positioned beneath Him and ordered as He sets every member within the human arrangements of family and church and society ultimately. Because God must command the blessing. It takes a high authority to speak with authority and to command the blessing or the blessing doesn't come. It doesn't come through wishful thinking. It doesn't come through man's plans and schemes. It doesn't come through the objective of just trying to bring everything to a low common denominator and an equity that is man-forced. It says that God commands the blessing. That preserves the element of authority. Amen. And if God commands the blessing, and if we're dependent upon God commanding the blessing, then do you, do you know what follows? What follows, dear brothers and sisters, is He commands it the way He pleases. And if He commands the blessing upon Israel through Moses, then the entire Israeli community will need to arrange themselves properly in deference to Moses' ministry in order to experience the blessing. And that principle is a feature of, of God's attributes, and therefore it is timeless. I want you to think about the phrase that we're reflecting on this afternoon as fitting within the category of an Old Testament beatitude. The end of Psalm 133, for there the Lord commands the blessing. This is something like, blessed are they that obey the teaching of verses 1, 2, and 3. For there shall they experience the dew of heaven, even life forevermore. That's the kind of heart relationship, that's the kind of faith, that's the kind of attention that we I believe, should give to the last remark of Psalm 133. This is an Old Testament beatitude. We should bring to it something of the respect and the attention and the expectation and the honor that we would bring to the beatitudes that the Lord Jesus Christ himself spake. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, and gave us the additional other seven beatitudes, these promises of supreme blessedness. You recognize with me, and we are, I think, comfortable. That is to say, we are prepared and we are minded to recognize that 
these promises of supreme blessedness are attached to certain experiences that we would not be instinctively prepared to embrace unless the Spirit of God does a work in us and encourages us to understand their value. So, for example, once again, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or the second beatitude, blessed are they that mourn. Or the fourth beatitude, blessed are they that hunger and thirst. And so on. Being poor in spirit, being one who mourns, hungering and thirsting, being persecuted for righteousness sake, and indeed even the need to be meek and merciful and pure in heart and to be peacemakers. All of those directives require a commitment and a sacrifice and an embracing of things that do not come pleasingly to the flesh. Do you understand? But there is a beatitude, there is a blessedness. Beatitude comes from the Latin, that means blessedness. There is a promise of supreme blessedness to those who give attention to these things. And there's a sense in which the beatitudes that Jesus spake are saying, as it were, there the Lord commands the blessing. Amen? Where there are the poor in spirit, there the Lord commands the kingdom of heaven. Where there are they that mourn, there the Lord commands comfort. Where there are meek, there the Lord commands that they would inherit the earth and so on. And I'm encouraging your spirits and my brothers and sisters in Christ to read Psalm 133 in that pattern and to see that you need to give attention to what the teaching of these verses entails to which we've already spoken at some length and will continue to reinforce. But at this moment, I'm bringing your spirits to the opening up of the application of these thoughts and speaking to you about how does this all flow. Initially here, you need to recognize the possibility. You need to recognize the objective in the interest of God that he wants to command a blessing within your family, within your church, even within the larger family of God. But we have to be willing to pay the cost. We have to be willing to value the spiritual principles and dispositions that would Open up that possibility and we have to watch the retention of the old man. May I say the New England instincts of the shrug of the shoulder and the easy reflex of picking up the stones and putting them back in place that separate us New Englanders from one another. Of mending the fences for reasons for which we have no real argument. A professor of Hebrew at Cambridge University wrote the following lines about the context within this beatitude is spoken. The beatitude of there the Lord commands the blessing. Amen. Blessed are they, God is saying, that read the language of Psalm 133 that reflect upon what it's speaking of, this image of Aaron in his beard and the anointing oil, this second image drawn not from the covenant, but from creation in the interest of God, reaching our hearts, stepping back and giving us a more familiar simile using now 
Mount Hermon and speaking to us about the way in which dew comes from the heights of Hermon when it is appreciated for the way in which God has arranged it. And when God's people find themselves in seasons of dryness, even within their churches, because relative to the valleys around Hermon, the place of Zion was dry and depended upon sources of refreshment that they could not generate themselves. And so too it is the case that we cannot just, as it were, you know, pronounce upon ourselves the blessing. You know what I'm trying to say? In other words, maybe you pray for these meetings as I do. In other words, maybe I open up the ministry with prayer as I, as I do. But do you recognize with me that there's a truth to the fact that you just can't pronounce the blessing out of your own resources just because you have the language? There is a certain there where the Lord commands the blessing and you have to appreciate the place that Mount Hermon plays in your life, and you say, well, what, what is that? Well, my point is partly in the direction of explaining what that is. I refer you certainly to the previous teachings, but for the moment, I say that what you're looking at is asking yourself the question, what would these two similes, what would the teaching of Psalm 133 look like in our church, in my marriage, in our home? among we Christians that know each other and are yet divided for what reasons sometimes we know not what. Well, as I started to say, the setting within which this beatitude was spoken from Psalm 133 is well expressed by the language of Alexander Kilpatrick when he writes, the psalm describes the blessings which flowed from the meeting of the Israelites at Jerusalem at the great religious festivals. Such meetings were a consecration of the whole nation. Think of that for a moment with me. What that refers to is when the Jewish populace found within themselves the stirring and the desire and the motivation to exercise what it takes to experience a little bit more unity and a little bit more let's get alongness among themselves when they activated that interest, when they acted on it, when they did the things that were necessary to bring themselves out of their own properties, from behind their closed doors, from out of perhaps their own fences and gather together and practice unity and practice love and practice sharing and practice practice commonality, then there was a consecrating of their hearts. There was a refreshing of their spirits. There was a change in their beings. There was a breakdown of some of the old patterns of division that existed for who knows why. And then our author goes on to say, following the consecration of the nation, they diffused a spirit of brotherly harmony throughout the rest of Israel. In other words, not everyone would actually literally go to Jerusalem during the feast. Do you understand? Not every last Jew. Just like, for example, in your family or in this church, perhaps, perhaps not everyone 
will take up the call and stir up their spirits to make the changes and the adjustments, the put-offs and the put-ons of the things that the Spirit of God directs us to such that we can develop a better unity among ourselves. Not everyone will, but they who do will experience a consecration of heart and the change within them will be diffused among the other members of the family or the church. And indeed, if a particular assembly embraces this in reverence and godly fear and has both the good and the pleasant within their experience of what biblical unity should look like, and we've already given a number of qualifying considerations such that you know we're not advocating an ecumenism that is just seeking unity for unity's sake without any reflection upon the moral lines upon which it should occur. But nonetheless, I say, sometimes we are still walking in divisions for which we have no good argument. And if we begin to embrace unity among ourselves, even as a church, that change within us can diffuse itself among other believers and perhaps we will speak to each other across our fences and discover whether or not there are genuine threats on the other side that keep us from being together. Or maybe we all just feel like the grass is always greener on my side of the fence, so never the twain shall meet. You have to ask yourself, did God put you asunder or did man put you asunder? I think there's a prohibition against putting asunder what God has put together. And I know there is one family of God in terms of what God ordained. He did not ordain 34,000 different expressions of that which says we worship the one God. And the average unbeliever says, well, which one are you? Which, which, which Jesus version do you follow? Alexander Kilpatrick, from whom I'm continuing to quote speaks, as I just referenced, of the diffusing of a spirit of brotherly harmony throughout the entire nation as a result of the experience within these pilgrim feasts, goes on to say they sustained and quickened the national life by bringing individuals into fellowship with Yahweh and with one another at the religious center of Yahweh's choice. The point of the similes, Kilpatrick says, then seems to be that as the sacred oil flowed down over Aaron's shoulders, so the harmonious unity of those who dwell in Jerusalem will influence the whole nation for good. The same spirit will be diffused throughout the whole community. The principle that we're stressing at this moment is that it was quite likely the case all too often among the Jews, as we're saying in a somewhat stereotypical fashion, it presently is among New Englanders, that we live behind our walls, we live behind our fences, we separate ourselves from one another, we barely know our neighbors' names, things along those lines. And I'm speaking about not just that literal analogy, but I hope you can make the reflection in your own spirit as it relates to ourselves within our families. We live in our phones. We live in our own worlds. We live behind our own doors. We live uh, within the fences of our, of our own offenses. Offenses, we were offended and we just keep building that wall back up and we don't 
Listen to the beatitude that is promised to those who will seek and activate and get off their rear ends, as it were, and make their pilgrimage to a place of better unity. And then perhaps we look at each other and we look at our lives and we wonder, why is it so dry? Why do our churches wither and go away? Why do our own lives lack the fruitation of the Spirit? Maybe because we're neglecting the beatitude that says there's a place where God commands the blessing. Blessed are they that love and value brotherly unity and ask themselves whenever they see offense, recognizing, as I'll say, as I head toward a conclusion for this particular message, given that we're going to have the communion of the bread and cup, I don't want to tax your physical capabilities too much. My intention always is when we have the communion of the bread and cup to have a shorter message. Often I never achieve that, and I'm thinking today I will make that more of a concerted objective. I have more to follow, but we can do it in a subsequent study. So what I'm wanting to emphasize at this moment is whether or not we are taken in our hearts. We are captured in our spirit. We are attentive to the voice of Almighty God, to the spiritual truth, to the message of God's holy word, coupled with the text I've already spoken about, where God commanded the earth to exist, where God said, I will command the blessing if you meet the qualifications where you fit into my value system, etc. I'm saying when the Jewish pilgrims gave more attention to the exercise of unity and the values that they would have to put in place to experience that. Do you understand what I'm saying? When they actually went to these feasts, when they made room for it in their schedules, when they spent whatever money and whatever time and effort it took to go there, and presumably when they went there, they did not isolate themselves in some upper room and close the door and lock themselves out in fear. You may remember the apostles were not very effective when that's all they did. When the Jewish pilgrims, I'm saying, made a notable effort toward unity, what Psalm 133 is doing, it's taking advantage of that situation. And the Spirit of God is saying, stop for a minute, family of God. Stop for a minute, brothers and sisters. Look into this experience within which you are purposely going after the value of unity, following it according to God's direction, but necessarily having to make adjustments and sacrifices in your own life to get there, just like if you want the blessing of the meek or they that mourn, you have to make adjustments in your spirit. Are you capturing what I'm saying? And the Spirit of God is saying, look at this. See the way in which it consecrates your heart. Do you notice within yourselves that there's a refreshing within your spirit when you're striving for a better unity on your drive home and you're actually trying to get along together? Over the dinner table when you're not bickering and complaining and you're paying attention to the principles that would lead toward brotherly unity. When you're not criticizing your husband or speaking ill of your wife. When you are arranging yourself purposely under the authority of God and respecting His lines of divine order. When you're actually doing that as opposed to opposing God's ministry. And you're discovering that God in that configuration begins to command the blessing. The anointing begins to flow. The fruitation begins to take place. It's good for you. It's good for God's purposes. It's good for God's people. 
Psalm 133 is saying, pay attention to that because that's where God will command the blessing. May this exhortation be to all of our hearts a motivation to examine whatever walls might be between us, within our families, within this assembly, among ourselves and other Christians. This is a holy, sacred endeavor. This is not a secular or silly undertaking. But nonetheless, there's a place where God commands the blessing, and we do well to examine our walls. May that be the reflection for this Sunday as we now turn our attention to focusing on the unity that we have through the redemption of Jesus Christ in the celebration of the one bread and the one cup that unites us all in a symbolic fashion. May the Lord bless the word to your hearts in Jesus' name.